welcome to the Onyx Pathcast. <laughs> I I hate everything right now. My name is Matthew Dawkins, and I'm here with my co-host Eddie Webb. Hello. Hello, and um, Dixie Cochran too. Hi, hi there. I'm very scared right now. I really uh, hate this. So. <laughs> So why the lascivious voice, Matthew? I know that's what you're thinking, listeners. Why lascivious? Well, it ties into the subject of this week's episode, which is playing games remotely. And why it ties into that will become apparent <laughs> probably around the 40-minute mark. Uh, but, and... <laughs> I was about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, no. Yeah, so I'm going to have to time that carefully. Uh, but otherwise, how are you both? Um, doing all right. I feel real awkward now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, doing okay. Um, all things considered, uh, it has gotten super, super cold here in Atlanta. Went from like roughly 50 degrees Fahrenheit to about 20 in about a week. So it's been a bit of a shift. So do you prefer the, uh, the Georgia chill uh, or the intense 90 days of ridiculous heat and humidity? <laughs> Neither. Um, I mean, uh, if, I, if I had to pick one, obviously the chill is, is, is much preference because I, I just really don't like the heat that much. Mm. Um, but uh, it's the sudden shock because it's yeah. never like over the course of a week or two, it slowly decreases. No, it's always like plummets. Yep. Same, same here. Like it, it, it would be like seventy-five one day, and the next day you'd wake up and it'd be like it's forty outside, and it's like mm. why, why? And what about what about you, Dixie? How are you? I'm doing all right. Um, as I told you before the recording, uh, there are both lawn maintenance people outside my window, and they are testing the fire alarms in my building intermittently all day. Uh, intermittently, intermittently. I can't say words. Um, words. And so if anybody hears a short bring in the background, it's not my old-timey telephone ringing. It's uh, our fire alarm being tested. And apparently I've got to come up with a Vampire the Masquerade fact whenever it goes <laughs> bring. Yeah. I really, I really should have thought of some of those before we started recording, shouldn't I? <laughs> I think I've dispensed with all of my Vampire the Masquerade facts over our 120-plus episodes by now. Uh, so I feel yeah. like you've got something in there. No, I am an empty vessel, hollow, hollow inside. Uh, <laughs> at least as far as it comes to vampire. Until we get to develop a new book, and then I can say, "Oh, there's all kinds of new things I know that you don't." Ha ha ha. Uh, but until then, um, I'm also all right. So there's no fire alarm testing where I am, and uh, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, as they say. Uh, around this time of year so that's exciting if that's the kind of thing you celebrate and if it isn't the kind of thing you celebrate well you might still feel excited it's December it's the end of the year and it's a, a, a <laughs> damn long year oh my god yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. this year has been a decade long I was excited when my Animal Crossing village was suddenly decorated for the holidays well, that's nice. Yeah. What, what was it decorated like? I mean, just... Is it, uh, well, it, it snows sometimes as an actual, like, weather effect. Um, but, like, all the, the shops have, like, lights and garlands in them. And the store was selling, uh, like, ugly Christmas sweaters. And there's all... Yeah, it's just, you know, it's just cute. I still have my Halloween decorations up, though. Try to take those down. Uh, but I like them because they've got bats. So... Who knows? 
Hmm. I'm trying to think if there's any video games I play that will have a seasonal theme. Uh, Mario Maker 2 might. I've uh, recently started uh, playing Hyrule Warriors, the new Legend of Zelda game on the Switch, and I don't think that's going to have a seasonal theme, but it is very good. I recommend it if people like Dynasty Warriors or Legend of Zelda. It's that, well, it's a combination of both, and it does work very well. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Very pleasant. Supposedly, there is going to be a Yule thing in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. Like some kind of Yule event that happens at your, your player town. Hmm, where you have to assassinate Santa Claus. No, no, I thought it's like a celebration or a feast, <laughs> like a, well, yeah, like a happy assa- thing. It's Assassin's Creed, so someone's got to die. Right. I mean, I mean lots of it. lots of Saxons are dying and Britons. <laughs> uh, Gar- Gar- oh, no, I was about to say Gary Busey was in Assassin's Creed. He wasn't. He was in a Hitman downloadable content at one point. I don't know if they ever made them available on general release for a little while the hitman game was doing uh, timed dlc they were like se- um seasonal i guess yeah yeah this was a lot yeah they were available for like three months and then they were deleted from your profile and you could no longer access them by any means oh weird uh, and yeah there was one mission that had gary Busey in uh as the target <laughs> from 2016 it looks like yeah. Wow. Uh, but yeah, they were really popular, and they had this really weird way of marketing. I guess it was experimental, but because you know, maybe they thought if we offer this for a limited time, more people will jump on it now. But who knows? Who knows whether it was a success? But yeah, interesting. I mean, we haven't seen anything like really since then, so I'm guessing probably not. Well, I I see it in a way as how we do editions of role-playing games, because as we all know, we release an edition, then we get to the end of the edition, we literally wrestle it from the hands of the players and say, (laughs) you can no longer play that previous edition. How dare you even think of it? Don't you dare use your imagination. And uh, then we force (laughs) them to play a new edition. Yeah, people don't realize that part of the role-playing game industry where we have to literally keep everybody's, like, address on file. Mm. And if they, like, give their books away, we have to track them. There's just a little chip in every single book so that when we do a new edition, we can go hunt all, like, hunt them all down and bury them in the desert like those E.T. video games. Oh, yeah, well, you know, people <laughs> go online and they, and people in the industry go online and say, the reality is RPGs should be being sold for something like $80 to $100 a piece due to the amount of work and effort and art and everything that goes into it. It's not actually the writing and the art. It's these microchips. They really bump up the cost of production. And for obvious reasons, we can't advertise that. And so, oh, well, there we go. Uh, don't consider this an advertisement and you'll be fine. But yeah, um, no, we we love you fans, especially fans who play older editions. I play older editions of games. I probably play more V20 than I do V5. I know that's likely to get me thrown out of some exclusive club. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what club would that be? I mean, the... Uh, what, what name one of the exclusive clubs that appears in Sherlock Holmes in one of his many adventures? <laughs> the Diogenes Club? Club? No, no, I don't think that's exclusive enough. They don't play vampire there. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's the Redheaded League uh, um, that play vampire. The oh, the completely fictional club. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, it's just my players who are long-term vampire players, World of Darkness players. 
know the rules for Vampire the Masquerade's previous editions and are very comfortable with them. And while they recognize the merits of V5 and, you know, that some of my players are very enthusiastic about the idea of hunger and some of the meta plot changes. Ultimately, they don't want to have to learn a new system when they're perfectly happy with the existing one. So it's never felt to us like we've had to change to V5. And I do run V5 for my Patreons. So everyone's happy. Well, it brings up an interesting point about uh, game preservation um, in that when you have things like those time DLC um, that's not something I can go back and play and study. You know, um, it, it, it doesn't exist anymore. Uh, I've worked on video games that either never materialized or didn't materialize, but now are no longer anywhere you can play them. Um, and as systems age, I mean, we're getting pretty good now about being able to adapt older games and be able to emulate and play them. Uh, but, you know, even then there's still a whole swath of games from like the 80s and 90s that just are gone yeah uh and so it, it's it's fascinating to me because the tabletop industry of all the games they're board games older board games are hard to acquire and replicate uh card games are a little better um but tabletop is one of the few industry gaming industries right now that actually has a pretty solid um preservation of its history primarily mm-hmm. due to companies like drive through rpg and so there's a whole bunch of people who are just like well why does it even exist? You know, or it's like, you know, they, they get very kind of like antagonistic towards these editions even existing because in most other industries, that's just not really an issue. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's especially a problem I would say with licensed games. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it was uh, quite a while. I know we were discussing recently. I don't think it was on the Pathcast The fact that when I was finishing off my Planescape collection way back when that was shortly after Planescape went out of print, and so everything was going up on eBay and being sold for ridiculous figures. And mm-hmm. now you can buy them all print on demand on Drive Through RPG, which is excellent. I, I've got no nothing against that, even if I have spent a little more than I would have had I bought them today. But um, and so yeah, it's wonderful that second edition AD and D and previous editions of D and D are now becoming available to whether it's older fans or people who are just interested in reading older material. But there are other games, whether it's the White Wolf Street Fighter game or um, Smallville, um, Buffy, Angel by Eden Studios Mm -hmm. that aren't going to be available uh, through legal means in, well, new anyway. You can buy them secondhand off eBay or Amazon or wherever people happen to sell secondhand games, but you're not going to be able to download an updated PDF with bookmarks and uh, or via print on demand, as an example, which is a pity, but legally understandable. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, uh, that isn't the topic of the episode today, but it was an interesting tangent. Uh, one of the few tangents we've ever been on that actually ties to RPGs. <laughs> That's true. That's true. true. Go <laughs> so on. We'll, yeah, so we'll uh, put that up in the Hall of Memories as something. Can... <laughs> the Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> A tangent that was still kind of work-related. Does that, does that hang next to the portrait of Mrs. Eisenhower? Yes, okay, so we have a Hall of Memories next to the portrait of Mrs. Eisenhower, <laughs> and it's where tangents got the tangent that lived, uh, the, the, the tangents that were actually not tangents, but were on, in some way on topic. 
Uh, we have. There's also glass. one tarnished horn hanging on the wall. Oh, yeah, farty horn. When the, <laughs> when, the, when the breeze blows through the Hall of Memories at just the right uh, angle, you hear a. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, what we're actually here to discuss this week is playing games remotely, and I guess to expand on that, how we found our styles of play changing over the last year, uh, because mm-hmm. increasing numbers of people have, of course, been forced to end up playing remotely because COVID has prevented people from meeting up in person if they have been responsible individuals, and uh, especially where you've had groups of four or more players uh, who don't all share the same house. It's uh, been very tricky to meet up with established gaming groups or meet new gamers. Uh, I've actually seen people posting in some of the Facebook groups of which I'm a member saying, hey, do you know where gamers go to uh, go, go in the city I live in or nearby? And I can tell them, but they're not going to find anyone there because we're in lockdown. Um, so we're all using remote play a lot more, and uh, I guess it's a good thing to talk about the advantages and disadvantages and some of the tricks and tips we found from such. So uh, mm-hmm. I'd like to start, Dixie. Uh, I th- mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Did uh, uh, Maybe you're a trendsetter. Were <laughs> you more of a remote player before everything that happened, uh, all of this lockdown? Kind of, but not. Uh, kind of, but not by like desire. Mm. Um, I, I just didn't live near anybody who was playing stuff, so I did any you know one shots or playing that I did do. I did mostly online, but really, I, I started doing it hardcore about when everybody else did back in like March and April. Yeah, and uh, I know this is a bit of a broad question, but hopefully, um, you can think of an answer. The um... What are the biggest changes you've found people making to remote play since you did it as a matter of, well, because you had to because there were no players locally, uh, to how such games are organized now, if, if any? Are there any major differences that spring to mind? Uh, there are a few. Like, really, it just depends on what kind of online game you're doing. If, if you're, like, because there's such a vast difference between, like, a Twitch stream or a game where you're on video that isn't a Twitch stream, mm. or a voice-only game. I I don't play text-only games, so I can't really speak to those. Um, but I find that when you're doing voice-only, that's it. It 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 is a little harder for me because I'm used to reading facial expressions. Yeah. Um, my my preference would be to play games that aren't streamed <laughs> with video. Because I like being able to see people, like see people, but I also don't like having to be like on twenty four seven. Because yeah. when you're at a table with folks, you can like you know you can doodle on your character sheet, and you can kind of like not look at like, not look at the group for a few minutes, and it's fine. Like you can you know have these little moments where you relax. Whereas when you're on stream, anyone can see you the whole time. So I feel like even when I'm not doing anything or my characters are doing anything, I have to be like you know, sit up straight, look at the camera, smile slightly, or make expressions that your character would make, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. Whereas when I've played, like, 
we've we've been playing consulting detective over video on discord um privately and i feel like i can show Mm -hmm. up i don't have to have like nice clothes on if i want to like squint at a puzzle i'm not worried about how i look you know it's a very different feeling and so well i i know you're playing vampire the masquerade right now that's your Mm -hmm. one of your regular games is that one being played remotely Yes, uh, this game played remotely, although two of us are in the same house because my boyfriend is a storyteller. Um, but everybody else doesn't live near us. Uh, and we're doing voice only via Discord on that one. Okay, so how does the storyteller handle things like handouts, if, if at all? Uh... Um, so screenshots them and put them in Discord. Yeah. If if we need one, yeah. Uh, like, he'll, he'll screenshot, like, one lore sheet just for us to look at, you know? If, if, if somebody has that lore sheet or if there is a player handout that's like a handwritten note, he'll, he'll screenshot it. Um, we've been doing a lot of like stock photos for our various touchstones and things like that. Yeah. Um, every, every, every player in the game has found a person to base their character off of. Uh, like one of our guys uses uh, photos of older bearded uh, Triple H. <laughs> oh, nice. Like Triple H in a suit. <laughs> yeah. Um, I use uh, photos of an actress I like named Joanna Vanderham. Um, he's done a lot of like period pieces. Uh, so I've, I've just got like a, a folder full of photos of her to represent my character. Um, and then, yeah, he'll also screenshot pictures of the NPCs that we meet, or the SPCs, I guess they're called, um, and, and put those in there so that we can see the, the, the art and see what they look like. So if we're talking to Kevin Jackson, he'll put a picture of Kevin Jackson in there. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 been working out pretty well. Uh, we have a few different channels in the Discord that we play in. So there's the one for actual like in-game stuff. There's the dice rolling channel. There's blue booking where we talk about our characters and make decisions and you know say what kind of things we want to see. And then there's a general chat, which is where like while we're talking, we can goof off and post gifts and memes and shit. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I I often find when I'm running games over Discord that as soon as people start posting gifts, the session devolves. I never mind because I just like that people are having a good time. But um, I found a lot of the Call of Cthulhu games I run, it'll get to a certain point, and I don't know whether it's just to break tension. A player will often post a gif uh, that relates in some way to something that just happened very loosely, and then everyone else will start bombarding the channel with gifs. Okay, (laughs) our attention's on this now. But I, I think I that we do it sparingly like enough in our group that we don't derail the game mm. too often. But also, like everybody else that we're playing with, um, they're they're all my boyfriend's friends from like high school and before. Yeah. Uh, so they have a very long-standing friendship, um, and they they took to me right away. They were totally cool with me being in there. Uh, but yeah, so it's 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 it, it, it's a very established group. Um, so they all know each other. They all know their play styles. Uh, we're pretty good at, you know, staying serious when we need to be staying serious. Um, and then getting silly when we need to be getting silly. So what about you, Eddie? What uh, what new dimensions have you entered in order to carry on with your gaming? Um, it, it's been odd, the journey, actually. Like, I was doing uh, a little bit of Roll20 um, about five or six years previously. Uh, I was actually probably even later than that. It was, it was right around the time we started doing V20. So I actually did a, a V20 game for some of the folks at uh, then White Wolf CCP and also some friends of the company. 
Um, and I found that to be an okay, but mixed experience. Um, it's just like, eh, just, maybe it's just not for me. Um, so this year when it became more of a, well, this is the thing I have to do now. Uh, uh, I kind of had to come to terms with what the, the differences were. Uh, and I think to be fair, one thing that really helped me is that because everyone's dealing with that, there's a lot more focus on what these changes are and what they look like. Uh, and so there's a lot more discussion around, okay, well, now that we're doing this, what are the concerns? Uh, and like, I know there are some people who uh, surprisingly are going to just text only online gaming, which uh, as someone who used to do IRC, that seems like a really bad idea, uh, <laughs> at least for me. Um, because it's it's very slow and people are constantly clobbering each other because one person's typing and another person's typing and then you know it's a lot of sync. Um, uh, but so uh, much like Dixie says, I prefer to do video where I can to see people. Um, it also helps me just because uh, uh, sometimes seeing people's body language, I can it helps me to fill in gaps whether either I miss a word because of my disability mm -hmm. or because of signal lag. Um, I can usually, okay, well, they're, you know, smiling and bouncing around. So clearly they're happy. So they're, they're probably, that word about them saying I'm going to die is probably not what they meant. They're probably something else like pie. Mm. Um, so, uh, but, you know, I had some anxiety around streaming specifically. It took me a while to kind of just wrap my head around the fact that streamed games are not the same thing. Uh, and intellectually, I understood that. Um you know, it's like I obviously a thing like Critical Role is very specifically a product and, and, and the performance. Um, and so it's going to be structured around that performative element. Uh, but in the past year, there's been so much blurriness between those two. Uh, I personally was, was, was getting confused. Um, but now that I've done it for a while, I've been playing in a, a few different uh, 5e games. Uh, I've been running a game for you guys. I played in the, the Scion games you ran. Um, I've been running Cazoli Detective, as you mentioned. Um, and I've learned a few things that worked well for me. Uh, one of which is uh, there's a lot more prep for certain styles of games. Um, like I generally am very kind of seat-in-my-pants improv kind of storyteller. Uh, and when there's anything that involves the potential for combat, I realized that it is much more beneficial to have some kind of map and some kind of marker. Mm -hmm. um, so for a game like Marvel Superheroes, like I'm running, it's like, okay, it's, it's a superhero game. It's going to be a fight, ideally, about once a session because superheroes punch each other. It's, that's their main form of, of interaction. Um, and so I've had <laughs> Sorry, I just Get pictured nice. everybody joining in the like Justice League hall and just punching each other. <laughs> it's, it's time for today's monthly meeting. Let's talk about dues. Bam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean it's like it's it's uh, it, it's something I've learned over years. It's like you know that's whether it's explicit or implicit, people expect a certain amount of of physical conflict. Um, and so when our games of it, it's like okay, well I have to have interesting locations to punch each other in. Um, and if I'm doing it around the table, I can pretty quickly narrate that stuff or give hand gestures or put dice on the table to kind of show relative distance to things. Like I can very quickly ad hoc a, a combat scene if I need be, but it's like uh, online, it's like, no, we have to 
get everyone logged into a VTT. We have, I have to have maps prepared. I have to have counters prepared. I have to have character sheets, all of that. Um, and so that's something that I've been coming to terms with. The other thing is I'm used to a table of about five to six players. Yeah. And online, that seems like for me a bit too many. I think yeah. four or five is about the most. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I've um, be, I've obviously, like everyone else, had to take my play online, and I use Discord predominantly for my Patreon games, and I mm-hmm. do those audio only. Uh, okay. And I, I, it's much the same reason as Dixie mentioned. Uh, I don't, I, I don't want to have to dress up, but nor do mm-hmm. I want the players to have to feel like they need to. And because we don't have the, I guess, strong personal relationship that you might do with a regular gaming group, uh, because there's a business transaction element to it, I right, don't right. want to uh, oblige them to have to, or make them feel obliged to dress up for the sake of a game. So I do most of those audio, all of those audio only, and I'm very happy with that. Likewise, when I do the Red Moon role-playing actual plays, they are audio only for the due to the nature of the game that those games are audio drama productions for intents and purposes. Then we go to my regular gaming group, which is via video chat. We use Facebook Messenger, and we have a couple of different Facebook. Uh, messenger groups one for artifacts or handouts uh, another just for general chat much like dixie has with the different discord sub Mm -hmm. sub servers sub channels and the one thing i don't use for any of my games and i run quite a lot of games online is roll 20 or astral tabletop and it isn't through uh, any particular dislike of the platforms by any means we all three of us recently played uh, a dead man's rust game run by travis leg for scarred mm-hmm. lands and that was mm-hmm. using astral tabletop and zoom and it worked very well but it also reinforced in my mind my major hang-up of using maps and counters and this is a this is a taste thing really it's not you know it's not me saying something is objectively good or bad uh i find as soon as you do introduce a map and counters it slows things down uh, to a pace that i as a gm don't enjoy uh because people start focusing too much on the thing they can play with and study rather than on the narrative and on role-playing. But that's speaking for my group, so I'm not generally speaking for every single role-player out there. Uh, No, and I think think it's worth kind of, if you don't mind digging into a bit, um, because uh, all of the D&D games, including counting the Scarlet game in this, um, I have played, I played through a virtual tabletop. Uh, And... um, so I can't say it's it's slowed it down or sped up because they've all been played in the same way, more or less. Um, but uh, I do feel like it, it, it shifts the game into more of a video game-ish component, which I don't necessarily think is bad. No, no, not at all. Um, uh, like right now, uh, uh, my wife is running us through um, a, a Baldur's Gate scenario um, sent into Avernus. It's a very good scenario. And it, it is. And what we have discovered over playing it is that um, 
she's trying to pace it to where if there's a lot of role play to be had, she, we kind of kind of structure the game to like, okay, well, this is the role play session. Uh, and then when we, unless it's a one-off combat, um, like if we're going into a dungeon type situation or into you know, a large series of events, then we try to structure it so that that, that session coming up is going to be largely dungeon crawling. And we recognize that that's not going to be the roleplay session. So there may be bits and pieces of roleplay and certainly there's been some emergent roleplay comes out of it, but we're kind of structured for, no, this is going to be combat. So we're going to look at a map. We're going to roll dice. We're going to talk about strategy and tactics. And I have found that that framing helps me to, I'm not shifting gears in the middle of a session. Yeah. Rather it's the, Oh, this is a fighting session versus this is a roleplay session or a narrative session. Uh, and I can go into that game kind of with those expectations in mind. Like, oh, you know what? I just feel like beating stuff up. Say, oh, yeah, but we have that dungeon crawl place. That'll be fun. Um, whereas the, oh, no, we're going to have to talk about um, tack. We're going to talk about, you know, how we're going to address and deal with the, the Flaming Fist and how we're going to deal with the politics of Waterdeep. Uh, so I better spend some time thinking and getting into that mode of, of what my character would do and how I need to do that, um, as opposed to having to do that kind of in the middle of a game. So, um if you are primarily running a game to just, I want to talk, focus on the narrative, I want to focus on uh, the story, I agree that having a VTT can actually be a hindrance to that because you're right. It, it's If you are trying to, let's say, videos on the table, you're trying to engage with people on the video and pay attention to a character sheet, which is going to be digital, most likely, and also pay attention to a screen with the virtual tabletop stuff and your dice rolls and, 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 and. Um, that's a lot to keep going um and i know when we did uh the game with travis uh one thing that we came away from is that we are used to our three game styles are much more descriptive because we're just doing it voice only through this podcast yeah um but during that game there was a lot of okay i go here and i'm gonna go to this guy um i roll okay i get 23 and that's not very descriptive so if you're just listening to it it's like i don't know what any of that means um uh, but I mean, because it was just one thing too many, I think, to keep in your head. Whereas at a table, you can just not look at the table for a while mm. and just talk to each other. There's a very natural kind of movement between because there's not the hard edge of, okay, I have to go into this digital space to do a combat thing. I have to go out of this digital space and focus on my friends on the Discord to do the role play scene. Uh, so I think that that's the nature of the digital space means that there's a little more of a, I have to reassess and, and, and move between spaces more explicitly intentionally. Whereas at a table, um, there's a the very natural, like Dixie was saying, it's like, you know, you're just kind of just scribbling on your sheet or you're not listening in and people can see that body language and go, okay, cool. This is your scene. We won't talk to you at the moment. Uh, you're focusing on something else and move on. Whereas that's going to be harder to tell. So there's a lot more intentionality I'm discovering through playing online and, VTTs are a part of that. Again, VTTs are great and they're wonderful. And I enjoy a certain amount of tactical gaming and I'm, I'm glad there's a way to re replicate that. But it's hard to do... It's hard to shift gears. Yeah, I can, I can see that. Um, I mean, there, there's elements there that I, I guess I disagree with, again, from a taste aspect. And that's not to say you've got poor taste, Eddie. I'm not being confrontational. Um, but in terms of... I just suck, of, Eddie. God. <laughs> God, you're a bad role player, Eddie, because you hate oh, this geez. medium. Uh, <laughs> but I was going to cast back to Dixie to ask what your experience is with VTT and whether for your 
preferred play style, it acts as a, I guess, a hindrance or a boon to it? Uh, I find that it really depends on what you're playing. Uh, I like it for playing D&D or D&D adjacent games. Uh, because having that whole like five feet rule, oh, well, am I going to provoke an attack of opportunity? All that kind of stuff is important in D and D combat. Um, but when you're playing like V five or something, it's it, it's too narrative. Like you don't right. need to yep. know the exact position of everything. Um, so uh, yeah, like we. The other place that I do like it is auto rolling. Um, I'm I'm in a cyberpunk red game right now, and we have a virtual tabletop set up. Um, but we're not using it at all for visuals, aside from the roll box, the little chat box. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. I like being able to just click on my character sheet and it rolls for me. I don't have to like think about how many dice I'm picking up or if I picked up yeah. a, a D12 instead of a D10 by accident or whatever, you know. Um, or like, h- how do I read these? How many su- successes did I get? I just click on it. And it tells me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so that's that's really, really helpful. Um when it comes to playing online. And I I like that aspect of it. Uh, we, we have a, a, a dice bot for our vampire game as well. Um, so whether you want to do it through something like Astral or, you know, Roll20, or you want to just do it through something like having a, a, a die roller in a Discord, I do like that bit of automation. Hmm. Um, but as far as having the visuals and the maps and stuff, great for things like Dead Man's Rust. You know, when it actually was showing us like where our our, our, our vision was and stuff, that was really cool. Um, and in, in combat in D and D, it's important to know how far you can move and stuff like that. But it's just really not in Vampire or Cyberpunk Red or whatever. So we just didn't do it for those. See, I I think uh, likewise some of the tools on Astral Tabletop that we were using for Dead Man's Rust, and I really recommend to listeners if you've not given Astral Tabletop a play yet give it a go because what we were able to do with it was um, Travis, our GM had linked all of our character sheets up to it. So Mm -hmm. all you had to do was click on a spell and it would tell you what that spell did in the, I guess, main server on Mm -hmm. actual tabletop. It would just appear in the text box. So you just had to click on it on your character sheet and boom, it was over there and it would immediately tell you how much damage that spell had done or Mm -hmm. that particular attack had done. And I think that that is wonderful. Uh, But And this is where I probably sound like an awful absolutist (laughs) and and bad wrong role-player fun person. Um. I, and again, I can't emphasize enough that this is just a question of personal taste. I even find with D&D and Pathfinder, and I found this to a degree with Lancer as well, which I've been playing uh, on uh, Roll20, that I am increasingly convinced that distance measurements in games, attacks of opportunities in games, uh, the kinds of things that one requires a map for are, for my money, better handled narratively. That there are very few cases in a game that I've ran or played where the distance someone is from another character and they have a bow and arrow actually has a significant bearing on the plot and if it does it's a major plot point that you know you are risking danger by getting closer to this enemy and so it's something that kind of gets narrated anyway because if they've just got to spend their time moving closer it's not necessarily a fun turn for them so uh 
and this is part of the reason I just don't use maps because I have this disconnect when I I play these games like tactical games. There are tactical games I love, don't get me wrong, uh, but I very much see them as tactical games, whereas there are role-playing games that I love that I very much see as role-playing games. And so when it comes into the minutiae of, uh, of attack rolls, attacks of opportunity, flanking bonuses, and all these other things, aspects that are in D&D that are very much of a tactical nature, I find that it's easier and narratively stronger to take the fate approach, uh, which we have also in Story Path to a degree, where if you enter an area, you narrate at the start like a handful of things, maybe five or six environmental elements that are of interest or importance. And if they can't see the enemy, they can't see them because it isn't that they can't see them on the map. It's just you haven't told them that they are there yet, but they can make an awareness roll or whatever the equivalent stat is to see if they can see them. Um, So... It's interesting. It's interesting that we each have a different view on this, on on our preferences. And I don't think any of them are are wrong, but it certainly tells me that there are some things, you know, some of us enjoy that some of us don't necessarily. Um, Well, I'm going to tell you you're wrong slightly. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You suck, Eddie. Um, Right, I I, I I know where you're going, and it's like it was a nice, good thought, but but also uh, uh, you're kind of wrong, um, because I have learned through playing with with maps explicitly that um, there is a sense of environments, persistent environments, that is harder to do in a purely voice only medium. Now, the caveat I'm going to put on there is that your idea about using something like uh, fate aspects or something like storyteller uh, uh, complications or fields can also duplicate this. Um, but when I run fate or when I run story path games, I, in physical world, I would have uh, sticky notes that I would put down in front of people so they can constantly reference yeah. them. So they could see that environment. So a map can do something similar to that. So I mean, you can still do a narrative style game you're talking about, but there's still a, a, a technical need for some way to display information persistently in front of players about the environment that they can then remind and engage them on. Because otherwise, it's going to, uh, what I found by run purely audio only or voice only combat is that people will forget certain elements oh. and I have to remind them. It's like, oh, just remember there's a statue there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Can De- I use definite- that statue? Blah, blah, blah. Definitely. So I mm-hmm. just type them out. I'll type out five bullet points and paste them or press enter and they'll appear in the text box and that's it then they can refer to them as much as they like and for me it means um from my laziness perspective i guess far less effort than going to you know designing a map or finding the appropriate one for the encounter well also also i've seen people use actual mind mapping uh share yeah yeah Mm -hmm. they can be excellent And, and then it becomes a nice blend of both. It, it, it's purely narrative things, but also people can see the connections between things and get some of that really vague tactical itch mm. or scratch, you know, because it's like, okay, well, this thing connects to that thing. So there's some kind of tactical connection there, um, but it's purely abstract. You just click on add new bubble and move on. Um, so that's another way of doing, I haven't used that, but I've seen people use that. And that could also be another way of doing that same thing. Um, but I mean, yeah, also posting it in there as well, but there's, there is a, sense of 
having something at the table um, is helpful to remind people. Because I remember you specifically, uh, I'm going to use you against you now. Um, <laughs> when you were first running, they came from beneath the sea. You said that you found people were more likely to use cinematics when they had a card in front of them or yeah. something from they could they'd say, oh, by the way, I can do this. Um, so having player options visible persistently in a way um, maps are just one of many ways to do that. But uh, I found in playing D and D with maps is I am more inclined to think about, okay, what if I hide behind this tree and shoot this way or, um, Oh, I can only go 30 feet, but they're 40 feet away. So in a narrative game, I would just go, I run up and hit yeah. him. But in a tackle game, it's like, okay, well, I actually can't do that yet. So there's going to be a return where I'm going to be visible um, and that sometimes leads to role play where it's yeah. like, okay, well, um, I'm willing to eat a round of damage for my friends, um, because otherwise the magic is getting hurt and I care about him. Yeah. Um, I was doing that a lot with my wretched cleric because even though I was a cleric, I was wretched and that gives me like a ridiculous con bonus. So I was mm -hmm. like, well, I can't get near them. So I'm just going to stand here and let them hit me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, I'm, but, I'm just uh, going to have to interrupt briefly to say that we are 40 minutes in. So the lascivious oh, okay. voice uh, was a character from <laughs> Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. Uh, <laughs> I think the character was called Ralph Finley, and he was yes. described as a lascivious individual in a blue dressing gown or something like that with a thick rope around his waist, and he was just generally a bit pervy uh, through his dialogue. Uh, and when I was playing him as the narrator in Sherlock Holmes, that was the voice we used. So anyway, back to the topic at hand. Wow. That is a hard shift. <laughs> I'm nothing if not a man of my word. Anyway, yeah. And apparently a um, dreadful role player, according to Eddie. <laughs> yeah, you're not a dreadful role player. You're just wrong. <laughs> No, again, uh, but I, I think I I agree. I think there are definitely players who respond better to visual and kinesthetic stimulus. Of course, there are, uh, and sometimes they they have no choice in the matter. That that is the that is the only way they can react or respond to things, and um, for them, uh, I would say that. Having having the maps, having the counters, and so on, and in indeed in the case of they came from games, having the cards or post-it notes is um, incredibly useful to them. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I, I'm I'm just speaking to my preferences. As no, I no, say, I'm at no point saying that people should be playing one way and not another. But I, I think that's something that sets. I know I I ran afoul of them just now starting to deprogram myself about is that VTT is designed to cover the most pressing needs of physicality. You know, they don't, they don't have maps, they don't have miniatures, so they need to address all of those concerns, especially for games that do require or at least encourage physical objects in relation to each other. And most online gaming that's happening right now, let's be honest, is Dungeons & Dragons, which uses a lot of that. Yeah. So people see these tools mm -hmm. and people use these tools to play and they assume, therefore, all online gaming must be like this. Yeah. Which, like, like I said, using some kind of, like, grid system doesn't make any sense for a vampire, really, um, right. when you're tracking combat. Because it's more, because you're a vampire. 
Like you're you're at a bar mm-hmm. fight. You're just gonna punch this dude, or you're gonna pick up this dude and throw him, or whatever, or you're gonna you know bite this person. Whatever you do, like you you really shouldn't have as many restrictions on it because you're trying to make it more cinematic. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, we 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 um, we. I mean, to be fair, we haven't run into a combat yet, but like in the Trinity game, I'm running for you guys. You know, we haven't used anything except for just describing stuff. Um, but if we do get into combat, it's not gonna be that long for one Mm -hmm. thing um neither of you are combat monkeys um but also uh it's just not going to be that relevance because that's not the kind of game we're running um and so i think some people when they get access to a tool uh they go well i have to use everything in the tool and Mm -hmm. it's just not true um uh when i ran uh v20 through roll 20 like i said five or six years ago all we all we use is a whiteboard um because occasionally be like okay the sabater here, you're here. I want to run up to him. Okay, cool. You're about here now. Yeah. Um, it was not in any way, shape, or form accurate. It was just kind of to give people a sense of how they relate to each other. That was it. I didn't use the grid system at all. Um, and this also relates to things like digital dice, which was the rant I was actually building up to. Um, like, <laughs> you're already just building up to it. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? There's a pre-rant before the rant. Um, like uh, the few times I've run online. Uh, I've been like, yeah, I don't care if you roll dice at your, where you're sitting at. And I find every time I have to explain this to my players, it's like, I just don't care. And it's like, but there are digital dice in the thing. Don't you want us to use that? And it's like, no. It's like, well, how do you see my role? It's like, if you're going to cheat and set up the role-playing game, I don't want to play with you. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, and, and like, I'll like, um, because Marvel Superhero uses percentile system, I had one player who generally rolled 99 a couple times during the game session. Mm-hmm. Nice. And she kept moving her webcam down. It's like, your show. It's like, I, I, I trust you. It's like, it's, it's amazing. It happens. These kinds of things happen in games sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so it's like, I, I personally don't need to see your dice rolls. Um, part of that is also because I, as a storyteller, constantly fudge dice rolls behind the screen. Um, yeah, of so, course. You know, I don't want to do that. Um, but that's basically it. I mean, it's like, um, again, it's the, the tool is there, so everyone has to use it. And um, I don't think that's true. I think it's something that as we look into this space of, of playing remotely online, um, just realizing that use the tools that work for you and throw away the rest. Yeah, no, no, I think that, that's fair. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, would, um, I would say in terms of the online dice rollers, the biggest advantage I see to them uh, is... Um, that it reminds me of how much dice rolling is a communal activity. Mm-hmm. How it can, oh, d- depending on the game, but uh, uh-huh. quite often, if you're at a tense moment in a game and one player has to make a dice roll uh, to succeed or fail at something, at that point, everyone's eyes are on the dice. Everyone is interested oh, to know that's what interesting. happens. Yeah, and uh, so in most of the games I play, I'm exactly the same as you, Eddie. I really don't care how people roll dice, and they can keep their dice, well, the roll private, and the results just announce that. Uh, but yeah, um, it has taken me a while to really realize how much. And in fact, it was only on Sunday that it really clicked in my mind. I was running a game called Broken Rooms uh, for my Patreons, which is a game I've mentioned a couple of times. I'm a really big fan of it. And 
it just so happened that one of the players couldn't get uh, the... We generally just use Google. We just type mm-hmm. into Google, roll this many D12, because it's a D12 game. And for whatever reason, this player in their country couldn't get uh, the Google dice roller to work. So I said, that's fine. I'll roll the dice, dice for you, and I will just snip and paste the dice rolls because uh, d12 dice pools into the discord so you can see what i roll and whenever i did there was a communal anticipation of what the result was going to be that wasn't there huh. for everyone else's roles that were taking place off camera and off mic mm-hmm. so it's making me rethink okay so how important is dice rolling from a pleasure side of gaming yeah i actually really like seeing the dice rolls for the same reason like we use um thirst bot for our v5 game and in, in, in discord mm. um yes it's called <laughs> thirst bot um That's great name yeah but it actually will say you know bestial failure or messy critical if you roll one yeah. of those and mm. in v5 those are very fun to play out um so whenever someone you know you can hear it. You'll like you'll you'll see the Malgavian or whatever roll like a messy crit. And everyone's just like, "Ooh, what's about to happen?" <laughs> um, and they all get real excited because you know that's that's fun. That's fun in that game. Yeah. Or uh, somebody fails their frenzy roll. It's like, "Oh, well, this is gonna be great." Um, because it's a horror game, and we have the same. So I'm I'm, I'm streaming that cyberpunk red game that I'm playing with with Vorpal Tales. And Ooh. having the die roller on the screen where the audience can also see it is, is interesting because like, okay, I, I guess the guy who is running our game, Eric, he, uh, he apparently is known for having cursed dice. <laughs> um, and so okay. whenever he was rolling NPCs against our characters doing stuff, he would just, he was just failing, just constant rolling very poorly. Um, and we were rolling pretty well. <laughs> like, we kept getting crits and natural tens and stuff, which is a big thing in, in Cyberpunk Red. So mm-hmm. that 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 was kind of fun for the audience because they were like, oh, poor Eric. Or And, you know, they could give advantage to people who were doing poorly as, like, a little reward thing as part of their patronage. So, yeah. Like, I, I think sometimes it can really add to the excitement of the game of, like, seeing where that die is going to land, you know? That, but honestly, that is genuinely something I had not thought about before. The the theater of the dice rolling is genuinely a revelation to me. So that's actually really cool. Now, I may have to really rethink how I approach Game 24 because that is an excellent, excellent point. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's as important for the storyteller sometimes. Like like you said, I'm down with GMs and storytellers budging dice. Um, mm. Simply right. because most of the ones that do it are doing it so that they don't murder all of the characters at one time. Correct. Um, yeah. As opposed to ones who are like, oh, I rolled 18 nat 20s in a row. Like, uh, no, no one does that. They're like, oh, you win, <laughs> even though they're like looking at a nat 20. Um, yeah, right. Because, you know, it's not fun to murder your players unless that's really what you're trying to do. Like, that's what, that's what the game's about, like, when you play Thin Candles. Yeah. Um, right. Like, I definitely fudged some roles in that. There were, there were a few times where I, I, I would have ended a scene when I was running that recently, and I was like, no, nah, I want a scene to keep going. So, right. yeah, yeah, y'all, y'all, y'all beat me. You have narrative control. Have fun. Um, also, oh if, if, also if, if I couldn't think of anything... For like a second, oh no, you have narrative control. <laughs> Tell me what happens. Uh, and right. Ten Candles is great for that. But like, I think player roles tend to not be fudge unless the player is being weird. Um, and right. so players do like to see if they succeed or fail on things. 
and yeah, like having it in the chat where everybody can see it or on a, on a screen where everybody can see it or what have you, I think can really add to the tension of a game because that is the one place where role-playing games are random. Like that is the yeah, one right. place where out, out outcome is not sure. Like you could always swing your sword, right? I and mean, you could right. always punch a dude or try to punch a dude or whatever. But sometimes you fail at those things. And that's interesting, narratively. See, I, I, I'm now, despite the fact I just extolled the virtues of that, uh, I've I've known players who have fudged dice rolls, and it's usually just lead if it becomes apparent, it just leads to a bit of awkwardness. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I, in theory, anyway, especially if it's people I play with regularly, I trust that if they as players are going to fudge their dice rolls, it's because they really they they are not going to enjoy losing at this moment. And so I have the, mm-hmm. I guess, prevailing attitude that ultimately players should be enjoying what they're doing. And mm-hmm. if what they need tonight is a good game for them where they do just triumph over evil or what, ha- what have you, um, then I really don't mind if they want to succeed over and over again. And I know mm-hmm. that kind of throws the rules out the window a bit but that is where the the theater of dice as you say uh kind of goes out the window because i can't well we can't manipulate that and i think it would be a bit too showy to say ah it's all right you you know you you pass you pass after you after you roll a critical failure right um so it's it's interesting. I, I certainly will be experimenting more with open dice rolling, which seems like a bizarre thing to say, given that a few years ago we were all comfortably sat at gaming tables playing with people in person where all dice rolls were open right. <laughs> and we didn't right. even question it. Uh, but, yeah. Um, hmm. I- interesting that we, we've all... Um, I mean, especially... Uh, you and I, Eddie, in this, have only just seen this as a revelation. Uh, Dixie yeah. knew all along, never told us. Dixie, went up. Dixie was ahead of it. She said it. <laughs> yeah, told you, trendsetter. I mean, how yeah. how exciting is it, though, when you're at a, like at an actual physical table with somebody and you're playing D&D and like, someone rolls a nat 20 on that really critical moment? Like, that's a yeah. great mm-hmm. feeling. It is. No, you're absolutely right. Or, you know, you're hanging from a ledge and bad things happening and then you roll a one and you're like, oh, God, oh, no. What's about to happen? Like, when I was running Pugmire uh, at Drinking and Dragon several years back, my player who was playing a tiny, tiny, tiny French dog. Um, I, don't, I don't know how he was <laughs> French, because there's no France in Pugmire, but he was doing the right, sure, Lafayette accent from Hamilton. Um, and he, he he had two axes, and he was super excited, and he jumped at this bad guy, or this, this demon, or whatever it was, and he rolled a one, and so he soared right over it. And landed on the ground, and both of his axes got planted into a log, and he was stuck for a minute. And that was funny. Like it, it right. was, it was fun. It was silly. Yeah. He, he, he failed, but he failed interestingly. You know, I didn't make him like chop his own leg off. Like it was just funny that he right. like jumped over the bad guy. Um, and that's that's also fun. Like failing forward is also fun. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, when 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 we have those those bestial failures or or those messy criticals in in Vampire, it's interesting. Something so, yeah. I want to do. Something I wanted to talk about that we touched upon briefly was, uh, I guess, high production value actual plays, the critical roles of the world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've seen this come up on Twitter occasionally, and usually the 
the communal or community response is no, no, that's ridiculous. But the question is, has Critical Role, Geek and Sundry and the like, I guess, lifted the bar somewhat for other people running actual plays or just running games in general? Is there an expectation due to the amount of fun these people seem to be having and the, I guess, quality of the acting in some cases that you're not doing it right if you're not having as good a time as all of the celebrities on Critical Role. I think that is something that people need to keep in mind is that Critical Role is A, they're all actors, professional actors. Same with LA by Night. Right. Like they're like yep. they're all pro actors and Jason Garland's pro storyteller, you know? Um mm-hmm. and so when you're trained in improv, <laughs> you're a very different uh, you know person than someone who was not trained in improv uh, when, when it comes to the role-playing game table. And I think to expect every actual play to be a, you know, costumed, makeup, edited affair when people are literally not getting paid to do it mm. is a bit much. <laughs> like, right. you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll throw together something, but my, my quote-unquote costume for the cyberpunk game I'm doing, yes, I'm wearing goggles because I used to go to goth clubs and I occasionally wore goggles and I am wearing a sweater that has like metal bits on it, but it's just a sweater that I own. And then I did, I, I did makeup, but I also used to work at Sephora. So makeup was a thing that I have access to and that I have a skill set right. to, to do on some level. Um, that said, I can't do like prosthetics. So if I'm playing a, a, a wretched, for instance, I'm just going to look like me because I'm not going to sit here and turn myself into a zombie at, you know, for three hours just to play a three hour game. Um, it is like, there are people who kind of run a like middle ground on that. There are folks who do really amazing costuming, but they are still playing remotely or they don't have all the editing. And that's, that's great if, if you can do that. And if you have that skill set. but I think that the most important thing when you're playing online is just to try to have a good time. Um, if, if you, if if you spend too much time thinking about trying to be entertaining, it can really put a damper on your role play. And I think that's, that's the big thing that I always get frustrated by the argument is because, I, I say I, I will say that I do believe the bar has been raised, but mm-hmm. I also think it's necessarily a bad thing. Um, the people assume that oh, because the quality bar has been raised, therefore everyone must raise their game to it. And it's like no, but certainly I've been listening to actual plays and watching some actual plays and going, oh, that's a really cool bit of game master tech. Let me try that at my table. Or oh, I had thought about treating things that way, and I've learned a lot about how to improve my own skills as a game master or as a player yeah. by watching and participating in these things. So I, I see them more as aspirational. Um, it's like I could do better, but you know, it's the, I'm not going to be this because I don't have money and professional skills behind me, but I can try an accent. Yeah. I hadn't tried that before. Yeah, yeah. No, you're not, like, like there are definitely some things you can do. I I tend to do some amount of makeup for whatever character I'm doing um, and get like a little into character. Um, but like I said, I'm also not going to sit here and put on like a full Nosferatu prosthetic face if I'm playing an Oz. Um, that's, right. that's, that's, that's a lot. But yeah, maybe doing some dark shadows under your eyes, you know, looking a little bit more dead. That's not too hard. Um, doing some beginner makeup stuff with inexpensive makeup. That can be fun. Even if it's just, you know, drawing on your face with, 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 with eyeliner a little bit. Or putting on a different color, mm-hmm. you know, lipstick or something for people. But also little things like um, uh, I was trying this out during our um, Dead Man's Rust game where it's like when I'm not 
talking and the other someone else is acting, doing much more physical comedy or physical acting mm-hmm. um, to kind of get an idea across silently because that's something that you can do uniquely in online streamed games that you can't do necessarily around the table because not everyone's necessarily looking at you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I did quite a lot of eye rolling during my Cyberpunk Red game, so... Because I, <laughs> mm-hmm. I was a rocker that was hanging out with a... It, it was a whole thing. I had to follow a cop and, 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 and film him, and uh, he was kind of bumbling, and so every time that he said anything, I was just like, oh, God. So there was a lot of, you know, <laughs> eye rolling and sneering and making little smirks and stuff. It's fun. Right. Yeah, sometimes when I'm on... I guess visual actual plays uh, that so streamed actual plays one should say uh, such as the ones we did for Onyx Pathcon. I I'm more I don't know whether I'd say I'm more inhibited. I'm certainly more I'm just nervous. I think mm-hmm. is the easiest way sure. to say. I, I'm I'm actually uh-huh. I'm very comfortable speaking and putting on accents sometimes. Uh, and, and such, but there is a different mindset I have to adopt if I know that an audience is going to care about what I'm doing. And for me, that very rarely extends to things like makeup, although way back when, when I used to do the Pentex Guide to Werewolves mm-hmm. videos on my channel, I would always wear a little bit of makeup for those. Um, but beyond that, I don't think I've ever really done an actual play where I've worn makeup. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do. I, I think uh, our games or my games, when I do run them for for an audience, are certainly structured differently, and I try to get different kind of player responses uh, than I would if it was just a home game or a, you know a game with friends, where I was just trying to, I guess, get through the plot in an interesting way, right? Um, but yeah, I suppose it's uh, it's the difference between being able to do a session where it's all about a character's personal problems that don't move the plot forward, but maybe really interesting for the players, um, compared to something produced for an audience where the audience really wants to know what's going to happen next, and they really don't want a flashback episode eight episodes into the series. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's the same with TV logic, really. Uh, and I suppose that's what you need to apply to these things. Um, right. To, what about the two of you? Do you find that your uh, aside from the um, aside from the makeup, I guess the theatricality of eye rolling and such, uh, how else do you feel you change up the way you perform for an audience as opposed to how you perform for other players? I think I'm more likely to do a voice or something at the table than I am to do it on yeah. stream and the re- or like or, or just in a private game. And part of that is because I'm not amazing at accent work. Uh, so I don't want mm-hmm. to accidentally slip into something that sounds offensive. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. which which would be totally accidental if it happened, but I could see it happening. Like, oh, I'm doing the I my my character for for Cyberpunk, which I keep bringing up for some reason, but my character for that is I think German. And I kind of looked mm-hmm. up how to do a German accent, and I was like, ah, this is not going to be good. Like, I'm I'm not, like, I've, I've, I dated a German guy for a while. I have German friends. Like, I should know how to do a German accent, but I really don't. And I was afraid it was going to sound just weirdly offensive if, if I did one. Yeah, it, 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 it can easily slide to cartoon Nazi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, 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 like, vague, like, Eastern European accent, which, right. like, that... Mm-hmm. 
Zoolander. Yeah, which you know. would, which will also drop people out of the character. If I right. if, if I'm talking to my V5 group, because my 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 character for my V5 game is British, um, and I do use an accent, which is nice because I can it, it it delineates when I'm speaking as her and when I'm speaking as myself. Um, mm-hmm. But also, like they don't really care if I don't actually. If, if I don't pronounce a word perfectly or I don't use the British pronunciation because there's five people in the group. Whereas if I'm, mm. if, if I've got, you know, 20 or a hundred people or hundreds of people watching an actual play I'm doing, and then the VOD goes up and that's there forever. And there's always going to be mm. some, somebody will have the chance to be like, Oh, did you hear when Dixie got really offensive with her accent? I'm like, I don't want to do that. Mm. Um, no, that so yeah. Fair. So yes, I am. I am more likely to do voices now. If we do, we had talked about doing maybe uh, some squeaks in the deep play at some point, which would mm-hmm. be super fun. And I do have a mouse voice, and I like my mouse voice, and she talks very quiet, and she makes me happy. But I don't feel like that's but going to be offensive. Accent. Yeah, she's just yeah. it's 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 just my mouse voice. Um, she, you know, that's 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 how they talk when I play them, and so I like talking like a mouse. Uh, and so I might do that because it's fun. And it's just a different voice from my own voice, which is, you know, pretty strident and and loud and a little low, and is not what I think a mouse sounds like. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, it's funny you mention sort of German accents. I'm, I've come to realize that while I'm fairly good at doing a range of English, uh, British English mm-hmm. and French accents. I am. I only have one German accent in me. <laughs> I, I've I've tried to have more than that, but I think mine might be the cartoon Nazi. Quite unintentionally, it's usually quite mm-hmm. a campy, um, you know, we have ways of making a thought kind of thing, right? Uh, yep. Which isn't necessarily appropriate if you're looking to do a serious horror game, <laughs> right? Uh, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Vampire Prince of Berlin. So you have come to my court. Uh, isn't yeah isn't doesn't have much gravitas to it um so yeah yeah right yeah like like for a while i used to i I thought i had a decent irish accent and then i went to ireland and i was like oh man like the fact that i thought there was an irish accent was the part of the problem yeah (laughs) my 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 irish accent likewise will not ever be a public consumption thing i i do one occasionally it's it's one of the few accents i can kind of do uh the the Mm -hmm. only accent i feel comfortable doing in front of a crowd is southern um, and that's because sure. I grew up in the South and I had a Southern accent that I kind of deliberately got rid of. Um, so mm-hmm. I can I, I can slip into that pretty easily and I don't feel like I'm being offensive because that is the accent I grew up mm-hmm. with. Right. I can also do a bit of I can also do a bit of Chicago uh, or Frost Belt accent, you know, that kind of easily accent. See, I if I do that, it's just me trying to sound like Hollywood, like 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 Mike Hollywood and uh I've only got a few phrases then. Diggity, diggity digs. Hot diggity digs. <laughs> Get me some of them diggity digs. You jag off. You jag off. Ma. Uh, hey, ma. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it's going But, like, that's, that's it. That's, 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 that's all I got. I, I, I could not do a full game under that. Um, I, I occasionally look up videos of, like, how to do X accent just to see if, like, maybe mm. I could play a character that has X accent. And generally, I'm like, this is too many steps, and I'm not going to do it right, and I'm going to forget, like, three of them. And so I'm going to slip out of it, or I'm going to slip into just British accent, because that's the only one I feel super comfortable doing for long periods of time. Mm. 
Um, so here's a digression from actual play type stuff. But um, how do, I'm curious, like, I've been thinking about this myself. How do you both feel about doing accents to emulate completely fictional societies? Um, so I'm okay with that in the sense that, well, certainly monsters, because I can do lots of, I can do a decent range of depth and pitch and so on. Uh, But when it comes to a artificial region, I guess I can do the what I would consider generic European accent, which covers a very wide area, but it's certainly British, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, British with an accent. Uh, but I think there's too great a risk for my level of comfort right. of ending up sounding like some awful 1970s British comedian trying to impersonate an Indian or someone okay. from. Mm-hmm. The Middle East, uh, Pakistani, a West Indian, um, or, or similar. Right. And I, in fact, I at the last in-person gaming convention I went to, and this really gave me pause for thought when it come, came to playing accents and games. Uh, I was walking around the convention hall, having just picked up a a game, and uh, be- between games I was playing in. And I heard a GM quite sincerely, it, it sounded like, playing an, an Indian with a with an stereotypical Indian accent. Like a Napu from The Simpsons kind of thing? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I was just thinking Great. Um, and it made me stop, of course. And I was thinking... This is this is awful. <laughs> uh, right. You know that this is the kind of thing that stopped being acceptable on television uh, thirty plus years ago. So why the mm-hmm. hell are you doing it right now to the entertainment of everyone at his table? Yeah. And, and if, and, if yeah. quick quick side note, if you haven't seen the problem with Apu, which is a twenty seventeen documentary film that uh, Hari Kondabolu did, you should yeah. watch it. Yeah, uh, and. You know, I can, I can understand that some people will adopt an accent like that and they will say, well, I'm doing this with all sincerity and I'm not trying to stereotype a character. I'm not trying to poke fun at a culture. This is just the accent the character's speaking with. But I think you can convey that someone has an accent and is from a region or culture without doing an accent that is also horrible uh, or offensive. Yeah. I mean, uh, so, so, yeah, I think they're just unnecessary. No, no matter how good you are at it, a white person doing an accent of a person of color of any kind is always going to sound racist. And so, yeah. like, yeah. like I took Japanese for five years, right? I could very easily talk like my Japanese teachers spoke English because I know what it sounds mm. like. Like, but I'm not gonna <laughs> because it's going to sound offensive. Even though it is, like, I, I, because when I was in middle school before I realized all stuff was offensive, we would, you know, imitate our teachers and stuff, not to make fun of her accent, but to, like, talk about the way, like, something she had said in class that, that, that we thought was funny, you know? Um, and we would do that and it's, it's pretty easy. And now I'm an adult and I'm like, I would never do that ever again. Um, but also like, could I? Yes. Should I? No. Um, if you want to adopt a different tone for your voice, like it, if I'm going to play a, a, a real pretty elf mage, right? Uh, 
I'm probably not going to talk like this. You know, I might, I might pitch up a little bit and be a little softer and possibly try to round out my accent a little more, be a little more precise mm. with my words. But I'm not going right. to do an accent because, first of all, elves don't have an accent. Dwarves don't have an accent. We only think of them as having certain accents because of Tolkien and TV. So, like, elves are British, right? Um, Dwarves are Scottish. Like, that's just what we think in our brains for some reason. And that's not... Weird, weird weird milieu. Sorry. Yeah, but, like, why? Like, why aren't elves Swedish? I I don't know. Why aren't... One of the reasons why I love Dragon Prince is that they made the elves Scottish. Um, And I thought that was really cool, because... um, but, But you're right, it's like, why weren't they Scottish to begin with? It was just kind of an arbitrary decision at one point in the past, and everyone kind of just went along with it. Because you're right, those we don't have default accents, but like, um, oh, I can see, uh, I can um, see why certain regions have been assigned to certain fantasy races, uh, and most mm-hmm. of it is awful stereotyping. But the elves right. are nobility, therefore they speak with refined accents. Dwarves are often miners or seen as working class. So they often speak with thick rural accents. Uh, and in, I think in the Dungeons and Dragons movie, God save us, uh, the dwarf speaks with a strong um, Bronx accent, wasn't it? Or uh, no, uh, he he's basically sounds like a 1920s Italian American gangster. Hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I think, and yeah, halflings are always, oh, hey, 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 kind of thing. You know, they're either right. from rural England or Ireland or Scotland, but somewhere again, very countrysidey. Yep. Right. But like, that's, that's once again, a lot of those are based on stereotypes of those folks. And so like, yeah, I, the, might might I go a little British playing certain characters? Sure. But really, I'm more likely to do that if the character has a, a noble background of some sort than based on their race or people. Mm. Um, right. And yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll modulate my voice um, and I'll, I'll, I'll change my, my pitch and tone and, and intonation and how well I pronounce things. But I, I generally don't do a, a fantasy accent because I, f- I feel like any quote unquote fantasy accent you could dream up would just like we we don't have any basis for that in our brains, you know, like I don't know what somebody with a, a, an elvish accent sounds like. Right. And I've been thinking about this particularly in regards to Pugmire because someone a while ago asked me what accent do dogs speak in? And the only answer I come up with this is American because I'm American and I wrote the game. That's the only reason yeah. why in my head they sound American. Um, and at the table, I have used regional accents to kind of distinguish between different kinds of dogs. But a couple of times I did it, afterwards I felt like, it, but why? It's like, and, and yeah. they all, again, came from stereotypes to a certain degree. It's like, well, the Irish setter has an Irish accent. You know, the, the, the corky has kind of a you know, like but really, this is far future. Are they even speaking English? Like, they probably have their own language because we right, exactly. like talk about them so. translating the old ones' texts, and the old mm-hmm. ones' texts are clearly in multiple languages. We don't. We have right. never established where Pugmire is in the world. So, are they are they translating German texts? We don't know. Are they translating Scandinavian texts? We have, we have no idea. Exactly. So, so it's something I've been mulling over. Is like, I mean, is, is this? Is this a thing? Um, but anyway, that is a digression. Um, uh, but I think it all points to a larger thing, which is that if you're with a group of people who don't care, sure, try accents. That could be a lot of fun. Um, but if you're in a place where other people can hear you, um, you know, recognize that 
they may be uncomfortable with certain accent use and be, and be aware yeah. of that. And yeah. don't, don't, don't do most racialized accents. It's not a good idea, just well, in general. No. Right. You, uh, mean, you shouldn't anyway. But ad- I mean. Adopt the Elder Scrolls Oblivion approach, uh, which has a... Either people are growling or they're shouting or they're sounding, sounding normal. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure the voiceover artists for Elder Scrolls are thoroughly talented people. However... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I mean, you have to record thousands of lines after a certain point in time, you run out of ammo, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I love the, the stereotypical dialogue in Oblivion is you pass two people chatting on the road, and it'll be, um, Hi! Hi! I hear there are mud crabs down by the creek. Vicious creatures. Horrible creatures. Yes. Yes! Bye! <laughs> Bye! <laughs> and... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's... And it's probably one. Ca- it's probably one actor doing both sets of lines too. Oh yeah, yeah. It just so happens that they they happen to have crossed each other's paths. <laughs> uh, but but you can do that without sounding offensive to anyone but Elder Scrolls elves, and I don't think they mind. Bye. Bye. <laughs> anyway, uh... that's actually the intro from now on. <laughs> bye. Bye. That's how we'll conclude. Bye. Bye. Here they're mud crabs. Mudcrabs. <laughs> Mud F- fierce creatures. Horrible creatures. Yes, yes. Yes. From beneath the sea. Mm. Daedric, you say. What's that? <laughs> I don't know. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Oh. Oblivion no. was fun at the time. I mean, at, uh, I remember a big Skyrim fan, you have that same issue where, like, there's, there's, there's only, you know, 20 lines that all the guards will say. Hmm. So... Uh, hence the old arrow to the knee. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, we've now ran uh, for an hour and 16 minutes, so it's probably start time to start wrapping up. Uh, therefore, uh, Eddie, if anyone wanted to find you on... Oh, oh, oh. And before we do, before we cover your very, very important social media information, Eddie, <laughs> we should announce the Christmas episode. I think we teased it in the last episode. Uh, oh, but yes. we are certainly... <laughs> by the sounds of it, barring technological mishap, going to be doing a watch-along of The Hobbit 3, and I don't even know what the subtitle of The Hobbit 3 is. Uh, Battle... Yeah, the best one. one. Um, We've decided (laughs) that for Christmas this year, Battle of the Five Armies, uh, we are going to go through the endurance exercise that is watching The Hobbit 3, and we will be giving things like timing so that you can join in and watch along with right. us. And we don't know if we're going to be entertaining because we've never done anything like this before. But at the very least, you'll be able to suffer along with us. And there's something to be said for communal suffering. So, Eddie, if someone wanted to find you on social media, where would they go? You can find me at pugstay.com, And from there, you can access to all of my social media accounts. And what about you, Dixie? You can find me at DixieCochran.com, DixieCyanide on most social media, um, and also in Discords and things randomly. And you can find me on MatthewDawkins.com, and if you are interested in following me on Twitter, I've actually recently changed my handle. I am no longer ClackClickBang. The ClackClickBang has been buried, interred, consigned to the waste basket. Uh, I am now Dawkins MP, not because I'm a member of Parliament, but because those are my initials. But I'm quite happy for people to operate under the uh, assumption that I'm a member of Parliament if it results in me getting more follows and patrons. So Dawkins MP is where to find me. And uh, with that said, 
Many Worlds, One Pathcast. Bye! Bye!